If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hi, everybody. Thank you for uh, coming and joining us today for Ant Security for All. We've got a great show. Um, Kim is not able to make it today, so she uh, she asked me if I uh, would be uh, have an opportunity to come in and, and, and talk to our guests. And I really got excited. I haven't seen you guys in a while, so uh, I'm excited about the topic that we're going to cover and about the... Uh, uh, about Mr. Brody coming in and talking with us. Um, some quick things. Um, make sure that you uh, join us on uh, Voice America Network for uh, all of the uh, past episodes that we have, plus on your favorite podcast tools. We've got uh, lots of great shows that Kim has done over over the last few months. Uh, it's, I've, I've been trying to catch it every week myself, and uh, she's got some some great guests and some great topics. Um, we've got two future con events coming up uh, this month. One is in Kansas City uh, on August 10th and Houston, Texas on August 24th. Um, I personally was going to try to sneak up to the August 10th one in Kansas City. I don't know if my schedule is going to allow, but I was going to try to, to, to drive up there. It's only a few hours away. Um, I was taking a look at the, uh, the speakers, and it looks like it's got a, she's got a great collection of uh, not only the panelists, but also the, the keynote and, and the other topics she's got. So uh, I'm excited for the Kansas City one. So... I want to bring on our guest uh, for this week, um, Sagi Brody. I think I said that right from Opt9. Opti and uh, we have some, a great topic. The topic is specifically we're going to you know, be covering is bad assumptions we see in cybersecurity. And uh, this can go a lot of different ways, but I think it's, it's going to be an interesting talk. So I'm uh, waiting for my screen to change over. There we go. Um, are you there? Can you hear us? Yeah, I'm here. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Uh, right. Excited to talk about this topic. Yeah, no, I thank you so much for for coming on, and and thanks for letting me uh, be the guest host today. I know uh, Kim when she she told me that you were going to be available, and she asked if uh, if I could do. I, I jumped at the chance. I thought I, I I took a look at your company, and I took a look at some things that you've done in the past. And I got really excited. I think we're going to have a great conversation. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, kind of give us you, you know, where you came from in terms of your cybersecurity career and what you're doing now. Just kind of give us, tell us who you are. Sure, yeah. Um, I've been in the industry for uh, about 22, 23 years and um, really started in the, sort of the heyday of the internet, uh, late 90s, uh, really hosting, uh, hosting websites for, for friends and family. And that, that quickly led to a, a web hosting business that uh, – Myself and a friend of mine started called WebAir, and uh, over the years, as sort of the the internet matured and sort of the, the sort of the various offerings and e-commerce matured as well, so did our our service our services too. Um, uh, about two years ago, where we were was at a point where we were mostly offering services to enterprise organizations, a lot of hospitals and, and banks and financial services. And um, mostly providing private cloud services, public cloud management, um, disaster recovery as a service, backups as a service, and sort of everything in between. Um, 
about a year ago, we, we merged with uh, another company called Jellicos based out of Nebraska, and they had a, a big uh, focus on, on Amazon Web Services, and we rebranded to Optinine. Um, and so o over the course of, of my career, I've sort of dabbled and dealt with everything. When you kind of start a, a tech company, at some point you become the, um, the escalation point for everything. Uh, it, it, uh, there's a problem that someone else can't figure out um, or, or people are stumped. So, so for better or for worse, uh, everything kind of landed on my plate at, at some point or another. Um, and so I've been you know, very much so involved with um, the, the uh, networking community, the folks that you know, take care of all the, the plumbing for the internet, um, involved with Nanog, and I'm on the board of a few similar organizations. Uh, I've done a, a ton of programming. Back when we started, there, there wasn't much commercial or open source software. There was no sort of rule book to all this back then. And we, so you had to kind of just um, build it all yourself and, um, and very much so involved with cloud. And certainly security has been a part of that. Um, you know, as a, as a uh, cloud provider, we've, we've seen attacks almost every day and ruined a lot of, uh, you know, nights and weekends dealing with DDoS attacks and zero day vulnerabilities and, and all that. Absolutely. Let me ask you, what, uh, you know, with you being in the industry for so long and, and, and actually kind of from the, from the services that you provide perspective for the, the cloud services, what do you think has been the, the biggest uh, change, uh, change and challenge um, over the last 10 years, you know, of course, with the adoption of cloud and cloud services over the last 15 years or even 20 years. But, you know, over the last 10 years, there seems to be, a, you know, of course, a major shift where people are thinking about cloud first or thinking about most of the organizations are specifically using cloud services. So uh, one of the things that, you know, when I think about cloud services, um, especially over the transition over the last few years, is there really is a mindset change. There's a mindset change of instead of thinking, what can we take from our, our local data centers and move it out to the cloud? They're thinking first, um, they uh, what can we put in the cloud? And then they make up the difference inside the data center. And uh, I know a lot of organizations who uh, who really do they, they don't even have local data centers in their organizations. It is strictly cloud. So what do you think has really changed over the last, let's say, 10 years in, from the mindset of cloud services? You know, an organization utilizing cloud services and your, your Amazons, your Azures, your, you know, a variety of this. But what do you think the, the main mentality change has been over for organizations for cloud? Oh, well, it's interesting. There's been, there's been a lot. I mean, I'd say that the biggest thing that I've seen that's changed is you know, it's it's really a pendulum that swings back and forth. If if we go back, um, even you know, before cloud, and we you know, go back, I guess, to the '70s, and you know, the way that compute started was all mainframes, right? And folks would would buy share time on a large mainframe to to take care of, of their tasks for them. Um, and then obviously, um, computers got less expensive, and everyone was deploying their own machines, their own servers, and own workstations to do their tasks. And then, um, then cloud came along, and everyone said, "Why do we need to be running our own our own servers? You know, there's this thing called the cloud, and and let's put everything there." Which very similar to the mainframe scenario. And and you know, what, I think what happened was whenever when when cloud came about, um, everyone thought it was this is it. You know, the, the cloud is going to be the only way that compute runs in the future and where our workloads run. And so they. Uh, lots of enterprises, 
you know, when to migrate or move all of their workloads to the cloud. Um, and, and, and then after a little bit more time, they sort of realized, hey, you know what? The cloud is really good for these types of workloads or use cases, maybe 60% or 70%, but it's not that good for these others. And so what happened was they started to bring back some of the workloads from the cloud because they learned which ones were a good fit and which ones were not. And the, you know, types of, um, the, the types of metrics that really determine that are uh, what are the security requirements of your workload? What are the latency requirements? Um, you know, how perpetual, how elastic are they? And so people learned what was a good fit for the cloud and what was not. And today, in, you know, today we don't hear people saying, I'm going all in with AWS. So we have a strategy, we're going all in with Azure because they've learned that um, the cloud is not the answer for everything. And so today, what we see, what we you know, the, the, the terminology today is hybrid cloud. It's a hybrid strategy and it's a hedge, right? It's, it's me saying that I acknowledge that one platform is not going to be the be all end all, um, but it needs to be a hybrid strategy. And for and some of them make sense to um, to run locally, and some of them make sense to run in the cloud. Uh, you know, edge compute, um, IoT are obviously good examples of, of workloads that um, need to run close. You look at the uh, the oil rigs, or um, you know, sort of cybersecurity running on, on an airplane. You know, those obviously are not dependent on the cloud. So I'd say it's a pendulum and it's swung back and forth. And I think what's interesting today is that people acknowledge that they, they kind of need the best of both worlds, you know, so that they future proof their business as new use cases and workloads come up. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's, uh, you know, we uh, here at the university, uh, I work for a small university here in Northeast Oklahoma. And uh, we, uh, we went private cloud first uh, through our ISP uh, because with higher education, we have access to some of the state resources um, in terms of our, our connections, you know, the main network connections, and they provide a lot of services for us. But as we grew, I mean, it very naturally goes to Azure for some services and AWS for some services, just as, you know, as those pieces become just how they evolve. Uh, but we still have a data center and we still have a private cloud and we still have the other pieces of cloud. And I think it's that balance that is important for organizations. But to that end, I think that that really does lead into the uh, the bad assumptions that organizations make. Because I know I had to deal with this very early on when we decided to do our cloud move. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this because uh, I hear this all the time. You know, we don't have enough money to make it secure, so we'll just go to the cloud instead, and they'll secure it for us. So I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. And I see you smiling because I'm sure you've heard this. You know, it, maybe it's been a couple years because I haven't heard it here in the last six months or so. But what do you think? What are your thoughts about that in terms of building security from the mindset of the organization into their cloud services or their cloud offerings? Yeah. Um, I would say the industry is just um, fraught with with vagueness and bad assumptions. Um, and, and you know, it works in the favor of the vendors. Um, you know, cloud is a very vague term, and it means different things to different people. And, and from a vendor perspective, um, and most you know non-technical folks are very confused by the cloud. And it's not that they are just not good at sort of understanding what's going on. It's more about that every every provider that's out there tries to latch on to sort of the buzzword of the day. And a lot of them are vague. 
cloud being the, probably the best example that's out there. And they can take that vague term and morph it and change it um, to, to be what makes sense for their marketing. And so I don't blame people for sort of being super confused when it comes to cloud. Um, you know, what we also saw, similar to what your situation, start with private cloud. We saw a lot of people that, and, and, and Optinine, you know, we, you know we, we try to be agnostic. We try to be fiduciary to the workload and have the workload's best interest at heart. So we do provide private cloud services and we do manage public clouds. And um, a lot of folks think that if they move to a private cloud or if they move to public cloud services or even to SaaS offerings like Microsoft 365, that it will break it will break sort of their, their IT paradigm. Um, and so I think what's interesting, especially with hybrid cloud is, you know, more important than trying to come up with a strategy for how do we, how do we get all of our workloads out of our data centers or out of the closet of the hospital into a public cloud? More important than that is how do we build a hybrid cloud, hybrid IT strategy that sits within the existing frameworks that we've already built for security uh, and for our network? You know, cloud and these managed services should not be sort of an exception to the rules that you've built for your security. And to the extent that maybe there's, you know, an IT team or a network team that sort of built this network strategy where everything is going to interconnect, again, the cloud should not be an exception. You know, so over the years, um, we've heard so many excuses. You know, I can't use cloud because, um, you know, we're, you know we, we're not allowed by our security team to use the cloud because of X, Y, and Z. And one of the things that we've done at Optinine is really build a reference architecture for hybrid cloud so that the cloud is sort of, you know, on the inside of your network, that it looks and feels and acts like it's part of your local IT environment, that it does not have to be an exception to the rule. And, uh, you know, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you an example. We worked with um, a law enforcement organization, you know, five or six years ago, and we were, um, we were trying to, they came to us because they needed a better disaster recovery strategy. And, you know, we, we pitched a solution based on our cloud. And they said, well, we can't use cloud. Why can't you use cloud? Well, because, you know, we're hosting a lot of evidence and our evidence can't cross state lines. Well, you know, we said, well, no problem. You know, we have, we have our cloud presences, our data centers within the same state, and we can build a private connection right to your doorstep and air gap your cloud from the public internet and provide you with sovereignty. And so you can use cloud. And so I'd say, you know, that's one of the assumptions that, we, that we've dealt with. Um, a lot of folks think that their enterprise is too complex, too confusing, too much, you know, legacy infrastructure, um, too many moving parts that, you know, they, they just write off cloud services. Um, but, you know, keep, it's not black and white. It's not, I mean, they're going to run everything, you know, in my data center on-prem or I'm going all in with public cloud. You know, hybrid cloud is really about building that integration framework so that you can pick and choose and match the right workloads to the right platform while at the same time, you know, being beholden to the security and network frameworks that you've already built. Yeah, I think that's really important because what we're talking about is fundamentals. You know, I, in my environment, you know, being higher education, we have a variety of different tools that we have to use and expectations that come in from different colleges, different departments and such. And when it really comes down to it is I've got to be tool agnostic. I, I've got to secure my resources and my data that's in, you know, whether it's a local server here on a desktop or in a, a, a virtual server that's up on our private cloud or something in Azure. So when you really get down to it, you still got to have strong fundamentals and you be able to translate those fundamentals to every 
you know, enclave or pocket of your data uh, or your services that you provide. So I, I want to make a note to anybody that's watching, whether you're on LinkedIn or any of the other tools that we have, or we're progressing on, is if you have any questions, please throw them in the chat. We'll make sure we get those covered. Uh, I'm going to jump over there and see if there's anybody. Uh, it looks like Megan's already put something in there. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so thinking about the assumptions, um, I want to uh, just kind of, from a CISO perspective, um, I again, I'm pretty agnostic on the, uh, on the tools that we use. What I'm looking for is from that vendor side or from that managed service side, the, uh, the that partnership, you know, that partnership to understand, okay, here are my requirements. I may need to have a BAA with you in terms of, let's say we're putting HIPAA data out there or FERPA data for me or maybe some other privacy data that we have to deal with and, and, and wanting to really leverage the resources I have at, um, uh, at that vendor or that service provider to help me do stuff that I can't do. Um, and, and here's a perfect example. We actually did, when we moved to our private cloud, we, uh, we did it for DR. Um, I needed to have, we had all of our services in one location in our data center and I didn't have a second data center. You know, we didn't have any way to be able to do that. So we, we got a second data center uh, in, hybrid, or in the uh, private cloud and we moved virtual machines over um, and then we decided, you know what, it's uh, because of some requirements um, for our financial auditing of access and who's doing it's easier to actually secure those up there to meet these specific requirements. And because the, the data center provided us some um, attestations of security, I was able to say, hey, they've, they've got these pieces covered that I can't do, plus... It gets it out of our data center, so we've got multiple locations, and we've got DR and business continuity plans. So do you see a lot of people looking at it that way of cloud services or any service, any vendor service, software as a service, or anything else? It provides me a solution that I can't get anywhere else, you know, at least specifically on-prem, and I can move there to solve some problems. Absolutely. I think it's, it's a really good point. And most people don't realize that and kind of until it's too late, until they get an audit that starts asking them all these questions um, that they're just not prepared to answer or they don't have those components in place. Uh, and what's happening now is it's kind of like an arms race when it comes to these security frameworks um, and, and audits. You know, So um, the, the ante is only going to be upped for all of these. And certainly when you look at, at HIPAA, or PCI or GDPR uh, or FedRAMP. And it's funny, at Alphanine, we, we maintain a SOC 2 type 2. And what we do through that, through that audit by a third party is every year we ask them to, to add additional frameworks to the audit that they perform. You know, this year we added like FDA type 2 and, um, and ITAR. And so every year we find ourselves adding additional frameworks because our customers are being, you know, are, are beholden to their industries. And they, they have to up the ante. Uh, CMMC in, in, the, in the federal government space is a big one that's coming up. So, you know, I, I agree with you that if you can have a provider, you know, take ownership and accountability for 50% or 80% of those components on the audit, I mean, that certainly makes your life easier. Um, and, and to shift ownership and accountability for those components 
um, is huge. You know, and, and I think what, what needs to happen is IT teams need to, you know, ask themselves, you know, what layers of my IT stack and of my applications and my infrastructure, you know, do we have an appetite to take accountability for and to be responsible for? You know, who, who, should, be, who should be accountable uh, for ensuring cybersecurity, ensuring proper backups, ensuring disaster recovery? Um, there's a lot. And, you know, I, as I'm sure you're aware, the, the onus that we put on IT teams, you know, it's constantly, we're constantly adding more burden onto their shoulders every year. And so to the extent that you can outsource some of it to a vendor and hold them accountable to a service level and a contract uh, with sort of cybersecurity insurance built in, I mean, to me, that's, that's an easy win. Yeah, I think uh, back to that assumptions thing, I think you hit it on the head where IT departments, and, I, and this is going to be a very broad statement, and I don't want anybody to get upset over this in the, in the audience, but um, IT departments believe they, in kind of rightfully so in some cases, that they can do anything. Um, they, they, they have this mindset where uh, we can do that, we can code that, we can program that, we can host that, we can buy that, we can learn that. And I, I can tell you that you know, from a small institution, small staff, small resources, and hard to find resources, you know, and I think we're going to get to that in a little bit about finding IT resources and IT security resources, but it's really hard for some people to say, I can't do that. You know, it's, uh, and, and that's where I think it's really important to work with your, your partners to say, I can't do this. You know, Jonathan Kimmett can't do this. His IT security team can't do this. We still need to get it done. How do we do it the most efficient way possible? And let's go talk to our partners. So I think that that's a, that's a major thing is in a lot of cases, IT teams. And let me ask you, why do you think that is? Why do you think, let me, let me rephrase the question. Why do you think IT teams or even IT security teams have this mindset that they can do anything in terms of providing these services and doing the security and doing the uh, meet all the requirements of cybersecurity insurance and all these compliances? Do you think it's just a uh, well? I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Why do you think that that is? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I don't know that there's. A, it's, a, it's a great question. I don't know that there's a single answer, but you know, I think now we're getting into sort of the, the psyche of, of the of the engineer, which right. I talk about a lot. But you know, so I would say one is we're, we're engineers. We like to build things. We like to create things. You know, um, you know, our our coding and scripting abilities and our and our ability to deploy and build infrastructure is the hammer, and everything is a nail. And yep. you know. That's great, but when you've been doing it for long enough, you start to realize that you know you build it, you own it. Um, and, and what I've learned is just because I can build something myself or program something to to perform a function, it, it does not mean that I should be doing that. Because yeah. again, it comes down to it comes down to ownership and responsibility and accountability and all these boring words, you know, non-technical words. But you build it yourself. You know, what what assurances? Do you have, you know, two and a half years later that it's still running the way that it was supposed to? Um, or if you have an employee write it for you, you know, who's who's taking that over? Um, and to what extent is that increasing your technical debt? Um, you know, to the so if you're using a third party platform or third party software, you know, and somebody somebody leaves and someone new comes in, great. 
you know, if it's standardized, commercial, whatever, open source, there's probably training for it. And you can put them through the training and it's standardized. We have to, we, we have to you know, ensure that we're not increasing technical debt um, and ensure that, you know, that we don't need tribal knowledge to get things done. Nobody likes getting woken up at four in the morning because they're the one that offered a program. I'd say the other component is that there's, there's like a misunderstanding of, of IT from sort of, you know, I'd say the higher ups, you know, non-technical management. Um, and they kind of put pressure downward on IT teams like, oh, we need this done, we need that done, we need this done. And, you know, IT teams, I think a lot of engineers see their value in their, in their engineering capabilities and less in their vendor management capabilities. And, you know, there's so many, um, you know, we have shiny object syndrome. We want to, we want to learn the latest, you know, new technologies. So I think the non-technical folks need to sort of put a little bit less pressure and have a better understanding of what it is, what are, what are the responsibilities of IT. And as long as the lights are on and things are secure, you know, what does it matter? Um, you know, if, if I'm sitting in the IT um, admin seat and I, and I, you know, someone asked me to, um, you know, set up a new email server or something, and I come back with a, a quote from, you know, Microsoft 365, you know, these days people might still say, well, isn't that what we pay you for? You know, aren't you going to run that? Why do we have to pay a vendor for something? So there's certainly pressure around that. And, and, and obviously you always have a little bit of job security mixed in with that as well. Sure. Yeah, you know, I think uh, that that actually leads to a really good assumption piece. You know, getting to the topic to the, of the, the talk. What do you think the assumptions for management? What what are some bad assumptions that management has? I think you just covered one. Number one, you know, isn't that what we pay you for? I've I've heard that before. Um, you know, I've heard that directed to me in terms of they wanted me to accomplish something, and I found a solution for it. And then someone comes, I was like, why, why can't you just go write that? I was like, well, because I'm not a C-sharp developer, for one thing. You know, that's, that's not what I do. And So what's, uh, what are some other things from the management side that you would like to – what are some of the assumptions yeah. that you think management have and that you would like to see changed? Oh, I mean, there's just so many. I mean, it's funny. So we talked a little bit ago about, you know, assumptions as to why we can't move to the cloud. Um, I think it's interesting to look at the assumptions of what happens once you are consuming cloud services or you're consuming software as a service platforms like Office 365 or Salesforce um, or, you know, QuickBooks Online or online EMR ERP systems and so on. You know, there's, there's just a ton of bad assumptions there. People figure once, once I'm using a cloud service for X, Y, and Z, then um, that provider must be securing it and they must be, you know, taking backups of it um, and providing me with resilience or disaster recovery. You know, once it goes to the cloud, it's, you know, hands off. That's what they assume. And that's really not the case. You know, one of the services that we sell at Optinine is we provide backups as a service, um, not only for on-premise um, you know, solution, not only for on-premise uh, infrastructure and physical servers and virtual servers, but for, Office 365 as well. In three years, we tell people about that and they're like, well, what do you mean? Office 365 doesn't have its own built-in backups? It's Microsoft. There must be, they must be running out of 10 different data centers and have all this resilience. And, you know, they, you know, there is resilience, but there are no long-term backups where you can hit a button and, and restore a mailbox to what it looked like, you know, um, three days ago or three weeks ago. And so uh, people really need to ask the right questions of their vendors. And, 
you mentioned a little bit before that, you know, you started consuming private cloud so that you would have a, a disaster recovery set up. And you think about how IT has changed, it used to be much simpler. You used to have all of your workloads in your production environment, point A, and then you maybe have a disaster recovery environment and copy or replicate everything over. These days, you know, the definition of your critical production environment could span multiple clouds and multiple SaaS, SaaS platforms um, and so on. And so how do you protect that? How do you secure that? And so to the extent that you have you know, security frameworks that you need to adhere to, or you have certain resilience or uptime or, or DR requirements, you need to figure all those things out before you engage with the vendor. You need to vet you know, the platforms and vendors you use at, at the onset of, mm -hmm. of evaluating service providers. It shouldn't be that after you've started consuming a service and start using a service that you go to your IT team or your security team and say, oh, by the way, we need to be sure this is secure because, you know, the, the framework and, and security program that you built might not be able to cover that. So we, yeah. need, to, we need to involve those, you know, at, at the onset of these conversations. Yeah, I do a lot of vendor management, uh, contract management, data security and privacy. And that's one of the things that I try to get across to departments is um, they, uh, in fact, there was a, a post on LinkedIn, I guess it was last week, and it was saying, um, and, and their big deal was, you know, what's the, the scariest thing that you've ever heard from a, a data protection officer? Or a data protection scenario and i think i wrote in there you know oh the ceo already signed this contract can you take a look at it hmm. and and i think it comes down to the same thing where people will start using a service and then they come back later and say hey we we need to be able to make sure we meet hipaa or graham leach blyly with this service can you can you do that and and from my philosophy from a CISO perspective you know my the answer is i I mean, I don't mind the different services as long as you're right. We do the risk assessment, you know, we do the risk analysis and we, we do that framework process to understand, you know, okay, where's the data going? How's it being stored? Who has access to it? How's it being destroyed? Um, I remember that I had a contract years ago where the, uh, it was actually stated in the contract that any data we gave this vendor, they would own for hmm. 25 years or something. Wow. And I, no, <laughs> I said no. I mean, I wasn't going to let them when, when our when our contract uh, was you know over. Then I expected them to give us back our data or to give us an attestation that they were going to destroy it. Um, and the the department didn't understand why that that mattered. Um, they didn't really understand. They were getting a free service, a free uh, web service out of this, uh, but the 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 vendor was getting all of our student data, which was very valuable to them because they could, you know, do data mining and stuff on it. Um, but that's one of those things that you, uh, if you don't get in there on the, in the beginning, if you don't uh, start talking to the vendor beforehand, um, I have a whole process that I go through on any vendor. Um, I have a, a questionnaire that I go through. Plus I get things like the heck bat. Um, you know, we have our data writer for the contract and, and in those things, you know, I ask very specific questions of, of, of that vendor of that service that, you know, given to us. And, and it's really interesting because I'll do this to, to large firms, um, and I'll do this to very small ones and it's, it's the same content, same questions. Uh, I remember I had one where we were trying to use a, a service and we asked them to do a, 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 
cyber insurance that they were going to get a section of our data, you know, a, a whole section of our student data. And, you know, as part of our crime over data writers, like you have to carry this much insurance to get this data. And which is reasonable. I think is reasonable. I think most people would say that, but they said that the premium to get that much insurance for them was going to be like four times the amount of money we'd be spending with them. And, yeah. uh, and I, I understood but we did not go with them because, you know, they were a smaller firm. They didn't have those protections in place. They didn't have the security protections in place. So, but that's something that I think is very critical. And I think you're right. You know, there is this assumption that, you know, oh, it's Azure. Um, then they must be backed up or, you know, or AWS or any of them. You know, I don't want to pick on any one of them specifically. Um, but I, I think it is, it does come down to those, uh, that mindset of fundamentals, you know, just because you're, you know, your data may not be in your data center, but you still need to make sure that where it's at is secure and make sure you have all the pieces, your access control list, your encryption, your, you know, all the, the your data flows, all those pieces needs to be looked at and, you know, make sure you understand them. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, that, that, to that extent, that's another assumption that people make that, if, you know, I'm using uh, Azure, AWS or Salesforce, or whatever, that they are, you know, they are responsible to, to secure it and to configure it. And I think what people, some people don't realize is some of these cloud platforms are great. You know, you know, all the public clouds, they are, the capabilities that, that you receive are just unbelievable. Um, but it's like walking into Home Depot. Uh, you know, you're just, you're getting a set of tools and parts and you've got to build it yourself. And so if an application that you're running on, on Amazon or Azure or Oracle or any of the others, um, is hacked, you know, it's not on them, it's, it's on you because, and, and you know, in, in their defense, they're just giving you the, the components. You have to go and build it. Um, they're only really responsible for your physical data. If somebody breaks into one of their physical data centers and steals a disk, you know, and so when you look at their um, SOC 2 audits or their BAAs, um, that's what they take responsibility for. So I think there is a, a very big assumption around, I'm using this provider, um, they, must, they must be handling my backups and my DR and my security. And over the last years, you know, a lot of folks learned the hard way um, that they don't. And so you have to add, you know, in, in our industry, obviously we use a, a, a you know, term of race, racy matrix, matrices, which stipulates who's responsible for what, um, but most people don't ask those questions. Um, in fact, you know, just going back to the auditing and, and the compliance, me sitting in the vendor seat, you know, we, we see a lot of potential customers and they absolutely don't ask the right questions. They ask us, you know, they ask us, do you have a SOC audit? Whereas they should be asking us, you know, do you have a SOC audit and did it have any exceptions? Did the auditors find anything wrong? You know, right. they ask us, um, they ask us, will you sign a BAA? Whereas they should be asking us, what does your BAA cover? Is it just the physical data? Is it? Or is it, is it everything that you're actually providing me with? Um, so I think it's getting a little better, but there's still a long way to go. And unfortunately, as you go down to smaller businesses where the IT teams are, are less mature or more scrapped, you know, that there is, there's a lot more assumptions being made. And every, every once in a while, someone gets it with, uh, with ransomware and, and you kind of learn the hard way. Yeah, you know, talk about the BAAs. Um, we... Uh, we we have covered entities on campus, so you know we have to deal with that. But what's interesting, you know, you hit it. Yeah, you know, I mean, you said it. It's 
the BAA generally says, yes, if you do these things, we, you know, we will provide a compliant, you know, network or facilities or whatever. Uh, but there's always the pieces you have to do. It's not just having that paper that is what protects you. It's the fact that you have the paper that you've asked the questions and you've implemented it in a way that meets those requirements. Uh, the best example that I have is a PCI. So if you're doing a, a PCI uh, a, a network, you know, if you're doing a, uh, if you have devices or part of your network that falls under PCI scope, uh, you can use PCI validated services or PCI validated P2PE devices to implement uh, in your environment that will reduce your scope. The problem with that is you have to deploy that based on the validated process. So it's not just the device is validated, but it's the implementation process. So if you don't deploy it in that way, if you don't, if it doesn't go through the exact same process that this company provided to the PCI Council, it's not PCI compliant. You have to go through a whole other process to get it compliant. And I think that's the that's the key factor. People people want to wash their hands of something. You know, they say, "Oh yeah, we we did this and thunk and we're done." And you know, security is so much more. And the other side of it is it's constant. You know, I I like to be in touch with my vendors. You know, not just during renewals or during contract, you know, renegotiation, but regularly. In fact, one of the things that we ask from them is uh, HECVAT is something that we use in higher education. It's the Higher Education Community Vendor Assessment Tool. And uh, what it is, is it's just it's, it's a set of questions that we ask from the vendor. Um, I, 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 you, may, you guys may have one that you've used for higher education, but it's just a set of questions. It's a spreadsheet. It's very a whole lot of questions. But I ask them to provide an updated version of HECVAT every year. Uh, because things change, you know, questions change and, or their environment may change, their staff may change. And, uh, I want to not only know about those changes, but I want to have that documentation that yes, it was changed and here's what we did so that I can go back and ask questions on it later. So, uh, that's one of the processes that we do here is we, we, we're in constant communication with them. We ask them questions and sometimes they don't want to answer, um, they, uh, because it's, you know, you know, I'm 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 the nagging CISO from Tulsa, Oklahoma, but <laughs> I think I think it's important. Yeah, and and you know, at the beginning, you mentioned um, that you, you really need to partner with your vendors, and and this is where that becomes you know very important um, because you don't want to work with a company that's too small that just doesn't have these s sorts of compliances in place or even the manpower to answer these questions all day. Uh, and sometimes working with the really, really big vendors um, doesn't uh, doesn't work out either because they, they don't have an appetite to to customize your setup or to or to answer all these questions or, or to help you answer your own audits. You know, they they're they're just uh, selling cookie cutter services at scale. Um, and so, at least for us, we try to be like right in the middle and and you know really try to be flexible and customizable, which is what, you know, infrastructure and, and, and cloud services is all about because there is really no one size, you know, fits all model. But um, ultimately, you know, you, you mentioned all the stuff that you're doing to manage the vendors. Ultimately, I think vendor management is, a, is in the end, a much easier task than, you know, infrastructure management and platform management. And so you can get cloud services and, and all sorts of different flavors. One where you're responsible, you know, you're responsible for everything. 
even the physical you know, hardware, uh, or you can outsource everything to a managed service provider. And, and I think there's that, that, that sweet middle ground for every company, but it really all starts with sitting down and saying, you know, what, what is our business model? And to what extent do we want, do we want to be in the business of securing infrastructure and platforms and, and managing it? Um, and to what extent do we want to focus on adding business value? And yep. I don't think people ask that enough. I think they go and deploy and use it, then they get, kind of get stuck owning something that might be hard getting out of. Yeah, it really is. It's uh, where do you want to devote your resources? Um, you know, that's a, that's a that's a key factor. You know, if you want to devote your resources into doing hardcore programming and development. Uh, or infrastructure or server maintenance and things like that versus, like you said, value add, you know, the, the value add in terms of the business and business decision making. Um, I think that's uh, when we're partnering with our vendors, strong leadership or good leadership in IT and IT security is that person that can balance that. They can, they can take you know, what are the needs of the business? What are the needs of security? What are the needs of infrastructure? And they, they wrap that all up into one package. Um, but it's not a package of one time, now you're done. It's every day and, and every month. And and that's one of the things that I think IT security has a real problem with in the industry is they're not that, and sometimes it's because they're not at the table, but other times they're just not that involved into the conversations. Um, I'm very fortunate. Um, I've got, uh, I've worked with all of our departments very closely. I know a lot of them, you know, I've worked with them, some of them for 20 years or more. And uh, they, uh, before they talk to a vendor, you know, they're on a phone with me and it's like, Hey, I absolutely thank you. Thanks for calling. Let's get them on the phone. Let's talk with them. You know, mm -hmm. let's ask some questions. Let's engage with them. Um, and a lot of times, I think the vendor likes that because, you know, I can talk the tech side, I can talk the policy side, I can talk the management side and, you know, we can get it all done in a single phone call instead of like, oh, well, we'll have to go ask security, we'll have to go ask IT, we'll have to go ask, you know, the, this group, you know, financial or purchasing or whatever. So uh, if you can have those good conversations early then I think that we can get through a lot of the problems very quickly. Um, so that's that's what I like doing is getting in, getting in the early conversations with the vendor, um, especially if we're giving them data. You know, if we're giving them student data, you know, I, I want to be asking questions. I want to ask questions of their engineers. I want to ask questions of their general counsel. Um, I want to ask questions of their of their leadership. Um, I remember uh, uh, kind of going back as you know, you were talking about uh, getting in front and you know the the working with larger companies, you know, larger, um, uh, vendors. We had a, uh, an individual, this is years and years ago. Uh, he's no longer here. Um, but he actually redlined a Microsoft agreement. Hmm. Um, and, uh, it was kind of funny because our, our sales, our account rep at the time was fairly cheeky. And so, this was this person literally printed it off and redlined it, red ink everywhere. So he sent it to Microsoft. Microsoft sent it right back, hmm. uh, a new a new copy of it, sent a new copy back, and a pen with a note saying, "We think your pen broke while you were reviewing this. Here's a new Microsoft pen, and here's a new copy of the contract." Hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean that that kind of sums it up right there. You know. <laughs> Um, you got to find that you got to find that sweet spot, especially if you know to the extent that you are a larger organization, a larger enterprise 
what, what we've noticed is the higher up the stack we go to companies that we work with, you know, the, the more edge cases there are, the more complex their network is, the more complex their security requirements are, the more legacy platforms, and the less vendors that are out there that can hit on all those touch points. Um, great example of that is disaster recovery. So we provide disaster recovery as a service. We like to focus on that on that enterprise use case um, because, frankly, there's not a lot of other vendors that can kind of hit on all those touch points. And um, you know, you, you don't want to do you don't want to protect 90% of your critical infrastructure. It's got to be all or nothing. And so if you have some physical servers or some IBM I series or P series platforms in your environment, and you're looking for disaster recovery, and your vendor doesn't you know, work with those, you know, it's just not going to work. You know, you, you, yeah. if, if the box is that important that it's still hanging around in this day and age, it must be doing something important. You're not just going to go virtualize it. So, um, you know, it's important that you are working with the right vendor and just talking about disaster recovery and backups, you know, just going back to the assumptions, I think that's to me lately where we see the most dangerous assumptions. I think folks have a, a false sense of security that, you know, Oh, I have backups. So if there was a ransomware attack, then you know I can recover. Or we have some sort of replication or a DR setup, um, we'll be fine. But unfortunately, it's just not the case. You know, people forget about how are my users going to consume the applications from the DR side. Or if I only have backups and not DR, you know, how long will it take to restore? In fact, um, it was almost a year. I think it was just past a year ago that the uh, Colonial Pipeline of ransomware attack occurred and. A lot of people don't realize they had a complete set of backups for all their systems, yet they were still down for, I think it was weeks yeah. uh, regarding because of ransomware. So it's not always about backups. You know, do you have, um, do you have an isolated recovery environment to restore to? Do you have real-time disaster recovery? Um, the other thing that we're seeing is, you know, to the extent that we get smarter as IT folks, you know, so are the so are the attackers. Um, mm -hmm. Now, what we are seeing is a lot of the attackers when they when they are attempting to ransomware an environment, they're getting into the organization's um, IT infrastructure. They're getting into the backups and disaster recovery software tools, and they're deleting all of the all of the local backups and all of the offsite replicas, um, yep. and then then they ransomware them and. You know, some people think if you have immutable backups, um, then they're, you're protected. Even that's not enough. You know, when it comes to disaster recovery and, and replication in specific, um, an attacker that gets into the, the source the source data mover or, or the software at, 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 the, at the production side, by virtue of how that software works, they get in there, they can destroy the entire DR site in seconds. You know, and this is true of all the modern data movers and, and backup and replication software that we've seen. Um, and so people don't realize if an attacker gets into my production environment, they can they can essentially make my DR site meaningless in minutes. So, yep. you know, at, at, as a company, Optin, we're, we're trying to, to mitigate that. We just announced uh, a tool called Observer where we realized because we're connected to our customers' backup servers, um, because we provide a service around that, we can, you know, we can address the backup and replication tool as, as a new attack vector and look for uh, suspicious activity, malicious activity, all these sorts of things that, us that usually happen before the ransomware attack. And now when we detect that, we'll air gap the DR site, which I think is really cool. Um, and again, it just speaks to that assumption that, oh, I have backups, I have DR, we're protected. You know, you, you always have to push the boundary because the attackers are. 
sorry if I'm, I'm ranting on that. It's just a topic. No, no, it, that is absolute truth. I, I tell you, I was on a panel back in December. It was actually our first live panel that I did back last year. And uh, it happened to be with an FBI agent and a CISO from the state of Oklahoma. Well, it was part of the Oklahoma municipalities. Um, it wasn't the state CISO, but we were sitting and talking. And of course, Kevin and I, um, the two CISOs, we were, we were talking about backups and the FBI agent. There wasn't a whole lot he could share because of investigations and whatever. Uh, but he was sitting there giggling. And if you've never heard an FBI agent giggle, this is, it's really amusing. And we just had a lot of fun with it. But what we were talking about is backups. And I made the comment that when I go into an organization, and I'm talking about them, about some of their issues that they're having. One of the first things I asked him is, you know, do you have backups? And, uh, you know, almost every one of them will say, absolutely, we have backups. Like, have you tested your backups? Absolutely. It's like, really? Have you truly, have you, have you fully recovered all the way back to production? Not just that you've recovered some files or you saw the file timestamps that you've recovered all the way back because you have so many dependencies. If you recover a server, did you also recover your DNS server, your domain controller, your DHCP server, you know, all these different things because you have all these dependencies on this server. And the FBI agent was saying, he goes, whenever they have an investigation, you know, an attack, yeah, he was on the cybersecurity side. Uh, whenever they have an attack or whenever they go in to investigate, they always ask those questions as well. Do you have backups? And he says probably 95% of the time people cannot recover their backups. They can't recover from their backups because they didn't either test them, they didn't test them all the way to production. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the assumptions is if you're doing some of this stuff, but you're not testing it, and, and even to the point of doing like tabletops, you know, are you really doing all those pieces to ensure that you have a DR plan? If you had that business continuity plan in place to protect your organization, to recover and to get back to full production. And there's just so many that don't. Um, and, and here's the thing. I, I really don't know why. I mean, we've been backups have been a thing. Offline backups have been a thing. Now, the, the newer version of attacks where they go after the backups first, you know, that's, let's say, five to eight years old where that's really become a known thing. Um, but it's still a very, this is, this is table stakes, you know, what we always call table stakes. You know, you, you've got to have good backups. You've got to have good business, con, you know, disaster recovery and business continuity. You know, can you function? Um, and I think a lot of organizations just don't get to that point. Um why do you yeah. think that is? Well, so that, it's funny. And so we, we provide disaster recovery and backups as a service where we will take ownership of building everything, ensuring that it's configured. We, we nudge our customers uh, to do the DR testing a few times a year. Uh, we, we, we create an audit log of it. We, we write, we author the run books for them. And so like, you know, they're paying us to ensure that they have a usable disaster recovery strategy and infrastructure. Um, but so often we start the engage, we, we go through the engagement and once the data, once their data has been replicated, you know, once, once they know that there's a copy of their data at one of our sites, a lot of times, you know, not, not a lot, I mean, it used to be worse, but often, sometimes they go dark on us, you know, yeah. why? Because now they can check the box. They can check the box that they have their data somewhere else. They can go back to their auditors and say we're good, and maybe they have another hundred things that they need to remediate. You know that that come before that, and so yeah, 
maybe it's bad assumptions that they think once we have the data somewhere else, you know, we can we can recover from ransomware. But what I always say is, I'm a networking guy. I always say it's it's great that you have a copy of all your data somewhere else, which, by the way, is security exposure. You know, people yep. don't realize that having a copy of your data somewhere else, you know, it, it means that it can be accessed through there too. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, so your offsite backups, your DR should not be, it should just be as secure. But, but also just because you have your data somewhere else, how are your users going to consume it? You know, in the event that you are hit by ransomware, if something happens, the last thing you're going to do if you're hit by ransomware is restore uh, a good known backup on top of the systems that were just, that were just attacked. Because obviously you want to do forensics and figure out how they got in. So you do need to have a separate infrastructure, an IRE, an isolated recovery environment, where you can bring your applications and systems back up and running from. That's and that's really kind of where disaster recovery fits into this whole conversation, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. We're about two minutes to close. So I'm going to do one last call for any comments or questions from the audience. So please throw your, uh, your questions or anything into the chat, and we'll make sure to try to get those answered. Um, you know, going back to your uh, the service that you're providing, I think that's great, and I think a lot of organizations can take advantage of something like that because you have expertise in doing that, and you can ask the right questions. Even though the organization may not know the the answers right away, you can kind of come in and you can help them answer. You know, ask the questions of okay, what what's your dependencies? What's your return to, you know, recovery objectives and things. Um, but one of the things that I think uh, we got one minute to close, and we get this one last little piece out. I think the new versions of compliance checking or the compliance requirements of the show me what you're doing versus just check the box and tell me, I think that's going to come into play. I think that's going to really help where organizations have to demonstrate that they're doing these processes and working with their their partners and their vendors. So I think that that's really important. So. We've got about 30 seconds. So uh, do you have anything else you want to say? You know, anything, one, any last thoughts you want people to, to remember you by in terms of this podcast? Uh, anything you want to say about Opti9? Uh, no, I mean, you know, we, uh, if, if someone is looking for, you know, better offsite backups or managed cloud or DR, I mean, our, our focus is on building the cybersecurity into those products and addressing those attack surfaces that are emerging and that people forget about. Um, you know, hit me up, Google me I'm on LinkedIn or Twitter and happy to keep chatting about this because uh, it's always evolving and you can, you know, you can't look away for a minute as, as you know, Jonathan. Yep, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming by. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate sharing your information with us and sharing your knowledge. This has been great. Remember, we have got two two more events from FutureCon coming up. That's August 10th uh, and August 24th. One's in Kansas City, one's in Houston. So, uh, And we're going to be here, I think, next week uh, and every week after that. So I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend and uh, you can catch us on Voice America and on your favorite podcast tools. So you guys have a, uh, have a great one. tuning into and security for all be sure to join your host kim hakem for another episode of the show next friday at noon pacific time and 3 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel and don't forget you can follow kim on linkedin by searching for kim hakem that's kim h-a-k-i-m to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events
Are you a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at futureconhq. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.